0: The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento insecticide from Bayer.
1: Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred,
2: Fred
3: Hoffman. March is definitely coming in like a lion, plenty of rain in the valley and snow in the Sierra. That's good news for summer water supplies, but will it be enough to raise agricultural water allocations to 100%? We look at the numbers. The February freeze still has fruit and nut tree orchard owners worried about the 2018 crop. We take a tour of one almond orchard near Galt to look for freeze damage. California agriculture spends a lot of money to convince state and federal legislators to pass farm-friendly bills. Maybe instead of lobbying so much in Washington and Sacramento, more effort should be made to take your farm story directly to the people in order to sway some minds at the Capitol. We talk with several young farmers and ag organizations who are doing just that. It's all coming up next on the KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Welcome rain in the valley and snow in the mountains raised hopes for farmers, ranchers, and, well, anyone who likes water in California. Last week's storm brought one to three inches of precipitation to many areas of the Sacramento and northern San Joaquin Valleys, along with water-laden heavy snow in the Sierra. And more is forecast for the coming week as well. Still, Gary Crawford reports that California is still a long way off from a March miracle to bring our precipitation back to normal amounts. In the Sierra
2: Nevada back in mid-February, the snowpack there, which provides spring and summer water supplies for millions, that snowpack had only about four inches worth of liquid in it. Since then, a couple of storms have built that up to 10 inches currently, but...
4: Despite the improvement, that is still substantially below average. It's less than 40 percent of average for early March.
2: And Agriculture Department meteorologist Brad Bippy says it's less than 33 percent of what you would normally expect by the end of March. However...
4: We do see some more storminess on the horizon, and as soon as this weekend we will see another parade of storms beginning to move into the western United States that could further improve snowpacks in the Sierra Nevada as well as the Great Basin and parts of the Intermountain West.
2: Rippey says it's not the March miracle that would be needed to get the snowpack up to something approaching normal. But certainly a boost here at
4: the end following what has been a very disappointing snowpack season,
2: which is usually over by early April. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington.
3: Steve Van Dyne, who manages orchards in San Joaquin and Stanislaus counties, visited one of the almond farms that he oversees southeast of Galt in late February. He was there along with the California Farm Bureau to assess the damage from the state's week-long run of sub-freezing temperatures in February. He found evidence of damage, but really it won't be until harvest time before he he knows, and other almond growers know, exactly how much damage there actually will be.
0: I've been farming for 39 years myself. My dad is 80, almost 84 years old. He doesn't recall a year like this. We've never seen a bloom this early. On my on my record books that I go back, I can't find a bloom that happened this early, especially when you only go back a week ago. And we were wearing short sleeve shirts. These trees were coming out. Everything was going great. And to have this kind of intense cold night after night after night... Maybe 25 years ago, 30 years ago, we had it, but these trees weren't blooming at this time. They usually would start blooming at the very end of February. And these little tight buds that haven't blossomed yet, they can handle this weather no problem. So yeah, it's definitely abnormal what we're going through right now. And we've sustained some damage. And uh, to the full extent, we won't know for quite some time. In In a few weeks, we'll know, we'll have a better guess, but we really won't know till harvest time. If we have a normal year, you know, normal warm spring, normal good hot summer. Yeah, we could have a harvest that's one to two weeks ahead.
3: The southern Sacramento and northern San Joaquin Valley suffered through an unusual freeze event during the latter half of February, eight mornings or more of temperatures at or below freezing. And there were three mornings that dropped below 29 degrees. Normal low temperatures for the latter half of February in the area, usually in the low 40s. The recent round of NAFTA
5: negotiations saw progress on agriculture issues. In Mexico City last week, negotiators wrapped up discussions regarding sanitary and phytosanitary measures, according to American Farm Bureau Federation economist Veronica Nye.
6: Those are basically the scientific rules that govern trade in plants and animals. That chapter actually closed, and that means negotiations are finished. And when we spoke with the U.S. negotiators, they were pretty happy with their results that they got out of Canada and Mexico.
5: Nye says the NAFTA chapter on technical barriers to trade, including things such as labeling, is close to being finished. However, she says there is much work yet to do regarding market access.
6: We've had a lot of concerns about the access U.S. dairy farmers and poultry producers have in Canada. We've asked Canada to give a significant new availability to send our products to their customers. And so far, we're having quite a lot of resistance to that. So that will probably be one of those topics that is concluded at the very end because it is such a thorny issue for our Canadian friends.
5: Negotiators previously planned to conclude negotiations by the end of this month. However, another round of talks is scheduled in April, and Nye tells farmers and ranchers not to expect NAFTA to be finished this year.
6: I think it's well known that Mexico has a presidential election this summer. U.S. midterms are in November, and we'll have an Impact because legislators tend to not want to vote on free trade agreements in any country during an election cycle. So I think it's safe to say that we're not expecting a concluded NAFTA by the end of 2018 at this given point.
3: Michael Clements, Washington. The Sites Reservoir Project to be located in Colusa County gathered more support recently. The Sacramento County Water Agency and the City of Sacramento have announced their formal decision to participate as members of the Sites Project Authority. Sites Reservoir's Joint Project Authority President Jim Watson says their addition to the Sites project adds heft to the importance and urgency of that Northern California water project. Well, the Sites Project Authority currently has participants from the, on the Sacramento River, the Feather River, and the Lower American River. We had 13 agencies, and then last week approved uh, the City and County, City of Sacramento, and the Sacramento County Water Agency to become members of the authority. So now we now have not only agriculture but urban support within the Sacramento Valley for the Sites Reservoir Project. Clearly not only having water industry support but having community support as well just reinforces the value of this project to the valley. The Sacramento County Water Agency and the City of Sacramento joined Placer County Water Agency as well as the City of Roseville in backing the building of the site's reservoir, showing growing support from throughout the Sacramento metropolitan area.
7: In California, it was quite an epidemic, especially in 2016. It actually reached the peak for the number of trees dead. Since 2010, we had 129 million trees die.
8: The epidemic referred to by Haganoush Preissler of the U.S. Forest Service is bark beetle. This pest infestation, coupled with drought conditions, has contributed to an increase in tree mortality in the forest and private lands of the Golden State. And while tree mortality is part of nature, a rise in the number of dead and dying trees means an increased threat of wildfire due to significant fuel loads. That led Preissler and Forest Service colleagues to develop a tool to forecast bark beetle-related tree mortality.
7: If we have historic data on weather and tree mortality, we group locations with similar history together and see what happened in the following year historically. Then we assume that in the future, locations with similar history are going to experience similar mortality, and that is what we forecast or project.
8: The bark beetle forecast for California was introduced last year. And Nancy Grohlke of the Forest Service says the 2018 forecast is now out. The
7: forecast shows a lot lower risk this year than prior years. So we're in pretty good shape. It feels pretty dry California this year, but the weather suitability from last year forecasts that will have less risk this year. So we should see a slowing of the mortality.
8: Currently, the forecast tools projection range is about one year. But Priceler and Grohlke say it should give public land managers like the Forest Service and private landowners ample time to prepare to combat potential threats to forest and tree mortality.
7: It just basically gives them a heads up months ahead to plan their strategies and to know where they're going to need to intervene most. Planners are a long time in advance for management of fuels reduction on the landscape. And if there are equivalent areas, this forecast will help prioritize quickly that a particular area should be done this year. It's at risk. So that was what the forecasting tool was designed for.
8: Land managers can not only use this model to plan for fuels reduction and hazard tree removal, but also in relation to pest suppression efforts against bark beetle and similar threats. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
3: Ag Day, that's Agriculture Day at the state capitol. It's coming up Tuesday, March 20th from 1130 to 130. During last year's Ag Day, former Board of Food and Agriculture President Craig McNamara talked about the event. Celebrating Ag Day is so important to all of us as Californians. You know why? We're all eaters. Some of us are farmers, but we all appreciate this incredible industry that participates on behalf of California. We're the fourth largest agricultural economy in the world, and many of us are here today. Many of us are ranchers, some of us are producers, but our legislators are here. These are the men and women who create the rules and regulations that help guide this amazing industry to be the best in the world. This year's theme is Climate Smart California Grown. California farmers and ranchers are working with state agencies to protect wildlife, reduce pollution, conserve water, and adapt to climate change. This year's theme honors that partnership and reflects the innovation and stewardship of California-grown agriculture. Again, Ag Day is this Tuesday, March 20th, outside the state capitol in Sacramento, 10th and L Streets, from 1130 to 130. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. <music> If farmers want people to know the truth about their job and what they do and what they accomplish, they need to tell their own story. That's according to Ruben Navarreta, syndicated columnist with the Washington Post Syndicate, native Californian, grew up on a ranch in Central California. And he says if farmers want to get the politicians off their back, they need to tell the people exactly what they're doing.
5: Imagine a farmer who has you know, four children, two daughters and two sons. And the farmer would love for these kids to stay in the family business. He prefer not to have to sell the farm that he got from his father that he spent every day putting his blood, sweat, and tears into. But he knows that in reality, because he sees what goes on with his friends at the coffee shop, that if his kids don't want to get into this business, he may have to sell, and they'll end up turning his you know, farm into another home development. Okay. But he sends the kids off to college and graduate school. And one comes back, and they study all about uh, agriculture and they come back, they go to Davis or present state and they learn how to be a next generation farmer. So that's good, you can keep that person in the in the business. The daughter goes forward and she goes to law school. That's helpful too because you're gonna be able to negotiate contracts with, with companies and the like. So that's terrific. She can contribute to the family business that way. The, the other son goes off into marketing and that's important because that's changing all the time. You need to know different ways of selling your fruit, right? So those three things are important my point is we've forgotten that fourth kid we've forgotten the job that's so incredibly critical for that fourth child the the, the one thing that farmers are not tending to no, no pun intended is that fourth kid needs to go and major in communications and get a master's degree in communications and come back and help tell the story of that farm and to come back and tell the story of farming because without communication those other three things The actual both the farming, the legal, the marketing are worthless. You have to go out and tell your story. Farmers don't like telling their own story. They have great stories. But, again, if you don't tell your story, before you know it, Democrats and Republicans are both painting a narrative that makes you into the bad guy.
3: That's syndicated columnist Ruben Navaretta. One group that's helping local farmers tell their own stories is in Placer County where the Placer Grown YouTube page features farmers who are telling their own stories about the crops that they grow and how they market them.
9: I'm Josh Hunsinger, Placer County Agricultural Commissioner, and today we're uh, talking about another one of Placer County's uh, top five commodities. Today it's cattle, which um, we have a significant number of cattle here in Placer County, primarily for beef production. We're out here at the Bruin Ranch, and I'm here with uh, Bruin Ranch manager, Joe Fisher, who's going to tell you a little bit about the operation out here.
10: Thanks, Josh, and thanks for the opportunity to share what Bruin Ranch is about and be listed as one of the top five commodities in Placer County. I appreciate the opportunity. Bruin Ranch was established about 15 years ago. It's a strictly purebred Angus operation. We run about 250 mother cows, and I've been working here for 12 years now.
9: So if uh, someone wanted to improve their herd and the genetics of their herd, they'd come to you uh, looking for a bull?
10: Absolutely, absolutely. And we sell bulls from any wide array of, of arenas, you might say. We we have bulls standing in stud and sell semen internationally. And then we'll sell bulls locally here in Placer County, five minutes down the road. A guy's been, he's our longest standing customer. We concentrate on higher end producers that, that want to target specific programs. And most of those cattle would, would qualify, or a lot of the cattle would qualify for certified Angus beef programs.
9: And, you know, I've heard it said when you're a livestock, Producer, you're really um, you're really farming uh, grass and forage, and the livestock's almost like a byproduct of that.
10: So that's kind of, in my opinion, Josh. That's that's the untold story and value of livestock is we're taking low quality, undigestible forages, and we're converting them into the one of the highest quality digestible byproducts, which would be protein and beef that could go out into into the the masses and. All the while, these landscapes and these oak savannas were created with the intention of being grazed by large herds of large ruminant animals. If we could use these animals to mimic the intentions in nature and, and create that soil churning in this, in this brittle environment, that's what creates the fully functioning microbe population. That's what keeps our soils correct and, and helps with the carbon sequestration and, and the water retention in the soil, which, which as you can tell, I'm super passionate about. And, and I think that we're on the cusp of, of the public's attention being drawn to that and seeing that while we, we, we get all of our income from the sale of the protein that we produce through digesting these forages, I think that maybe the largest value in these cattle is a grazing tool. And that's something that, that maybe hasn't been monetized in the past, but I think that we look out in the next 10 to 20 years, people are going to start realizing the, the value of grazing stock.
9: And you were talking a little bit earlier with me about, like, uh, cover crops and doing some different things to actually improve the uh, variety of plants that are growing out here in your pastures.
10: The initial goal is to try to... And it started off as being a little bit lazy, to be frank, but but I want to have the minimal inputs possible in our operation, and that's what keeps our our bottom line correct. The more I pay for labor and our employees going out and doing things, the, the more it affects our bottom line, obviously. So if I could use cattle and I could use nature to do the work for me. This plot of land here, it was actually a new irrigation crop, and I wanted to to get rid of the compaction that may have been there without tilling or using alternative mechanized methods of churning the soil. So we planted a lot of, of larger, deeper taprooted plants, and we're also trying to figure out if we can create a model for for these, these cover cropping um, and, and more perennial plants that would provide a better option for finishing grass-fed livestock. I think that that's one thing that, that we could improve upon in the Sierra foothills. There's a huge demand for that product from the consumer, but how do we create a highly sought after high quality consistent product when it's July and all of our grasses qualities are diminishing. Well, if we can introduce some different varieties that thrive within those environments and can take advantage of that situation, then we can maybe finish those, those animals on a higher quality roughage.
9: Thanks so much, Joe. I think it's fascinating to see how nature and science interact and we are really uh, doing a lot for the environment while at the same time producing an economic crop and managing it to the best of your abilities. That's really uh, tremendous to see what's going on just right here in Placer County. If you'd like to learn more about Placer County's Agriculture Department, including all of the information on our crop reports, please visit placer.ca.gov slash agriculture. And if you'd like to learn more about how to connect with our local farmers and ranchers and all of our agricultural bounty, please visit placergrown.org.
3: Tyler and Amy Black grew up around farming. While they have their own small farm outside Lodi in San Joaquin County, where they're raising their sons, they chose to become agribusiness professionals. They recently spoke to the California Farm Bureau about their passion for agriculture and how they're fulfilling their mission in agribusiness. I
9: would say a farm bureau, it's not your you know grandfather's organization anymore i think you have a lot of younger people that are driven by technology, that want to get involved and, and figure out solutions uh, when dealing with some of these regulations that we face on a daily basis. And and so I encourage anybody that um, has an interest in agriculture or is actively farming or um, to, to get involved because there's a place for everybody in Farm Bureau.
1: Both Tyler and I have a passion for agriculture and knew that we wanted to work in agriculture. But if, unfortunately, especially in California, the cost of entering um, production agriculture as as a full-time career is uh very limited for young people. And so both of us coming from families who were in agriculture, but didn't necessarily have their own operations that we could um, become a part of. We've chose to work in the ag industry, have careers that have us dealing with farmers and ranchers on a daily basis. Um, But we also have our own small farming operation. We grow wine grapes, we have um, dairy cattle, and we also um, grow our own hay for those cattle. So it allows us to be involved production agriculture and hopefully to grow that over time Um, but for this time we you know we have our our day jobs as well as our farming.
3: Tyler Blagg is a real estate agent specializing in agricultural properties. Amy Blagg is the executive director of the Lodi District Grape Growers Association and both are very active in the California Farm Bureau Federation.
4: Listeners, welcome to Rice Radio. In this episode, we're going to go in-depth on recent efforts to restore the depleted salmon runs of Northern California rivers. But these efforts are not your run-of-the-mill operation. This isn't the government stepping in with some new policy or regulation. This isn't a success story of an environmental organization making good on a mission statement. It is, in fact, quite the contrary. These are river pumpers, stakeholders, farmers, rice farmers, teamed up with scientists, taking a pragmatic stab at saving fish.
3: What you just heard was a snippet from Rice Radio, a new podcast, a production of Kurt Richter of Richter Ag in Calusa. He's a rice farmer. He decided he wanted to get the story of rice farmers out to the people directly. And he's done a fabulous job with Rice Radio, which is available as a podcast. And we're talking with Kurt Richter. And Kurt, tell us a little bit about the Richter family and their history in the area of rice farming.
4: Uh, Well, my family uh, settled in the Maxwell area. Um, many, many years ago, uh, we had uh, our original immigrant that came over um, from uh, what wasn't Germany at the time, but is Germany now uh, in the late 1800s and uh, was, I think, originally a dairy farmer out there in Maxwell, which was pretty common at that time. And uh, over time and multiple generations, it evolved into rice farming. And, uh, and you know, my dad, Took over what my grandfather had uh, gotten started on and and grew it considerably. And, and now I'm sliding into to my slot and uh, and have a very active role in, in farming all the rice fields that we have.
3: And yeah, it's quite extensive as well. Talk a little bit about the fields that uh, you're, you're managing.
4: Yeah, we're, we're scattered out into a few different places in Calusa County. We have a really strong presence over in the Maxwell area. We've also recently um, developed a presence uh, closer to the Calusa area and we have a a little bit of land uh, that we farm. Uh, in Southview butte county uh, as well
3: and you have vertically integrated to have uh, ancillary rice businesses associated with your farming
4: yes um, us along with our business partners have uh, established a rice drying and storage facility over in the delvin area and also a rice mill just outside of maxwell
3: so how the heck do you have time to put together a, a fabulous podcast rice radio that that doesn't just pop out of your head and end up on the internet that takes time
4: it does take time but a lot of it does happen in my head Um, you know as I'm out driving around checking on fields during the season which is pretty much all day every day uh, the things that I see and the experiences that I'm having all just kind of naturally uh, form in my head in in sort of a story format and so I've I do a lot of note-taking and um, you know memo scratching and uh, and slowly compile it together that's why I do one episode a month at the end of the month it's just sort of a recap on what's been going on in the world of rice farming or Sacramento Valley, you know, broader Sacramento Valley topics. Um, and then by the end of the month, I take all my notes and thoughts and ideas and, and squeeze it down into a script with whatever audio I was able to record in the field as well and uh, put it all together as quickly as I can and get it online.
3: Why did you start up Rice Radio? Why, why did you feel there was a, a need for this podcast?
4: You know, um, I think when I, when I consume the media that's out there that's covering ag-related topics, I, I'm often find myself dissatisfied with how farmers are represented they are either inaccurately represented or underrepresented or not represented at all and every time I read a story or see a, a story on the news or something you know to that effect I often found myself dissatisfied with what I was what I was seeing thinking man they're just they're missing the point or they don't they don't get what our point of view quite right so I decided to take it upon myself to get that point of view out there in the way that I think it needs to be you know the messaging the way the messaging I think needs to be presented so it started with blogs it evolved to vlogging or posting videos on YouTube and then I decided that podcasting was really the best format for what I wanted to convey because because it's it's something that you can listen to while you're doing other things. You don't have to sit down and read an article. You don't have to sit down and watch a video. You can just listen to it while you're out working or washing the dishes at home or, or whatever. And so that allows me to be a little more uh, liberal with my time in terms of how long of a script I put together and how long of a story I tell. Uh, and so it just felt like the right format at the right time. It's a, kind of a you. uh, medium and people are still learning about it. And I just wanted to, you know, kind of be part of the front end of that.
3: Unlike a lot of podcasts that drone on for an hour, hour and a half or two hours, yours is very concise. It's usually in fact, it's always up to this point, been less than 30 minutes and covers a wide range of topics. You talk about the waterfowl and and rice, uh, water storage, Orville Dam. Uh, You paid a visit to the Calusa Farm Show. And as we heard in the opening uh, of this segment, uh, how farmers are taking upon themselves to help save the salmon in the Sacramento Valley. So how do you choose the topics that you cover?
4: It's mostly timely, um, you know, so during rice season, it's just primarily going to be what's going on in rice at that time. So we're about to enter our groundwork and planting season. So the episodes that come during that time, will focus heavily on that. During harvest, I did a whole episode that was just on harvest and, and what a wild harvest it was last season. And then as I get into the off season where there isn't really as much going on, it allows me to put a little more in-depth focus onto some of these other topics that are, that impact the world of california rice but also impact a lot of other people too like i did an entire episode on the oroville dam um i did that entire episode on uh, the salmon restoration efforts that water agencies and farmers have been leveraging um and it's just a chance to go a little more in depth than maybe um other media has and tell that story as fully as i can Um, and hopefully let people know that these kinds of things are going on because it's uh, alarming to to find out how many people don't know about this stuff
3: and a subject that's near and dear to a lot of people up in the calusa area as it should be in most of northern california in your february episode you talk about sites reservoir
4: that's right and that's something that's been a real hot topic around here for i mean more than five years um and especially after prop one passed it became all the people talked about and there's so much misinformation out there about that. I mean, I've had people say, oh, I was so happy to hear they started construction on Sites Reservoir. And I say, they haven't started construction on Sites Reservoir. You know, people, don't, people don't hear the real truth about what's going on with these things a lot of the time. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have direct contact to a lot of the people in the know. So I just go out and talk to them and get them to give me the, the latest, most accurate information and then put it out there so people can find out what's really going on with these types of things.
3: The name of the podcast is Rice Ray. It's an inside look at all things related to the California rice industry and the Sacramento Valley. It's produced and hosted by a farmer, a California rice grower, Kurt Richter. And Kurt, if people want more information about Rice Radio, where's the best place to go?
4: Uh, I'll have a link to um, the podcast on our website, RichterAg.com. If you just click on the blog page, that will be a post on there that has all the links. Or you could follow me on Twitter at Kurt Richter Ag. And there's also sorts of links all over the place on that
3: and for the spelling impaired kurt richter k-u-r-t r-i-c-h-t-e-r correct with an A-Z at the end uh, as
4: a it commemorates our, com- our company richter ag
3: all right it, it's rice radio give it a listen it's an excellent podcast and even if you're not a rice farmer you're going to learn a lot kurt thanks for a few minutes of your time and uh, best of luck with rice radio Thank you uh,
2: very much, and uh, and I appreciate that. Certainly no shortage of rice around the world, and in fact, agriculture department analysts have just upped their forecast for world rice production this marketing year, adding just under 2 million tons to it. Which just gives us a fractional increase year over year in production and a new global record high in production. And USDA Outlook Board Chairman Seth Myers says world rice stocks will grow to their second highest level ever. However, he says, that doesn't change the outlook for U.S. growers who this past season cut plantings by almost 20% which produced a much smaller crop. So in that regard, we have been tightening down the U.S. market and trimming carryout stocks. U.S. rice stocks could end the marketing year 37% lower than the year before. That's kept prices 20% higher than last season. So USDA analysts are projecting this spring rice growers may boost plantings by 17%. Not a surprise with a little bit higher prices and a pretty low area in 17 to 18 to see a little bit higher area. We'll know more when we see USDA's planting intentions report March 29th. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington.
3: Coming up Thursday, March 29th, it's Foothill Grape Day going on in Plymouth. University of California experts will be discussing vine balance. That's the ratio between vine yield and vine size, critical measurements for optimum plant health. Among the seminars that day, University of California Cooperative Extension experts will be talking about ground factors that influence vine balanced, pruning and training principles, canopy management, and crop load management. It's an all-day affair going on from 7.30 until 2.45. For more information, visit the website ucanr.org slash Day. <laughs> Coming up this Friday, March 23rd, at the David Lubin Elementary School in East Sacramento. They're at 3535 M Street. It's farm day from 9 to 11 a.m. There will be 40 farmers, ranchers, FFA, 4-H members. They're going to have their live animals, plants, and displays. It's all about teaching students about agriculture and we're talking to the organizer of the event Elizabeth Watkins and Elizabeth this is uh, this is a rather big FFA project for you isn't it
11: <laughs> It is I'm working towards a proficiency in agriculture education and so I thought Um, what better way to help obtain my goals than to bring farming and agriculture to an urban school in Sacramento?
3: How in the world did you convince 40 farmers and ranchers (laughs) and everybody else to come out on a spring day to an elementary school?
11: (laughs) Well, I have a little uh, luck up my sleeve, but some experience in organizing ag days. I've done one at a Modesto school, St. Stanislaus. So I have some experience and some ties to the agriculture industry as I live on a farm and ranch in Linden. I brought together my FFA. I'm a part of the San Joaquin Stanislaus Cattlewoman and a California Woman for Agriculture. I touched on some fellow 4-H member friends from the Herald 4-H Club and uh, pulled everything together.
3: Well, all right. Yes, it's going to be a great event. Now, this is just for the students and the teachers at David Lubin School, isn't it?
11: Correct. There's about 580 students, and so we'll break them up into two rotations, K through third and fourth through sixth. The older kids will get a little bit more in-depth on some of the topics, um, like roping or branding, and the younger kids will see more of the animals and get to interact with the chickens and the rabbits and the calves.
3: Do you have any plans to expand this to other schools?
11: I um, like to focus my efforts on agriculture education, so as many students as I can touch, I like to. I will. I did a Facebook live stream at the Tulare Ag Show, and twelve hundred teachers were invited with their students to attend. So, reaching as many students as possible is really the best way to advocate for agriculture.
3: The amazing Elizabeth Watkins is who we're talking <laughs> to. Uh, she has her own website, farmgirlchef.us, and mm-hmm. you, you've probably figured out she's still in high school. You go to Central Catholic in Modesto, right?
11: I do. I'm a junior there.
3: And where do you plan to go to college?
11: I want to go out of state, and I think I want to major in agriculture communications.
3: Very good. All right. Because getting the word out about agriculture, very important to uh, let people understand just how important one of California's prime industries is to all of us.
11: Exactly. It will lead to the continued success of the industry.
3: What is amazing is uh, all the TV appearances uh, that you do uh, doing some, uh, shall we say, farm to fork uh, recipes. And uh, you have YouTube videos there at your website, farmgirlchef.us. And it's uh, rather amazing uh, all the recipes you can put together of uh, food and products uh, from your own farm.
11: Yeah. Um, Growing up on the farm, I always was in the kitchen with my mom and my grandma's. An opportunity came about for me to be on Food Network's Shop Junior, and I won. And so my passion for cooking has escalated since then. And I use my cooking talent to tie agriculture in. And uh, I do TV appearances about once a month. And I focus on what's in season, the up and coming commodity. And then I make it into a recipe, post it on my blog. I post the video of the interview. So people can go back and find recipes for produce that's in season.
3: And if I'm correct, didn't you uh, do something at the last Sacramento Farm to Fork event?
11: I did. I was lucky enough to be a MC for one of the stages. So I helped Taylor's Market. I ran their butchering contest. I got to MC for that and uh, work with another um, ranch and talk about their beef.
3: All right. So you're still involved with 4-H, FFA. You've got the website. You've got the YouTube page. Uh, You've got it going on. Farmgirlchef.us is the website. Previous winner of Food Network's Chopped Junior and still going to school at Central Catholic High School with a great future to spread the good word about agriculture here in California. Now, I want to ask you about one of the recipes that you presented recently, and that was a Super Bowl Philly cheesesteak sandwich. Yes. What, so what was from the farm in that recipe?
11: Um I incorporated bell peppers and white onions and I just sauteed them down. So of course those are two uh vegetables and then I added just deli roast beef because we're always supporting the beef industry. I raised my own beef herd of registered shorthorns and then we just wrapped it all together with some cheddar cheese.
3: That sounds delicious. And again, you can find that recipe at farmgirlchef.us. For a junior in high school, this is a a very bright future that you have, Elizabeth Watkins. And (laughs) best of luck at uh, the David Lubin Elementary School Farm Day on March 23rd from 9 to 11 a.m. And best of luck in the future.
11: Thank you very much, Fred, for having me on. You may not realize it when
2: you go to your local supermarket here, but supermarkets are fighting to stay relevant and stay in business against a flood of new competition for our food dollar in other words as the Randy Newman song says it's out there
12: it's a very tough business out there
2: and we'll find out how tough it is for supermarkets and what they're doing to cope and compete on this edition of Agriculture USA I'm Gary Crawford about a time in an era long, long ago, uh, before 1916, there were no self-service grocery stores, let alone supermarkets. A shopper would go into a store and they might ask the clerk,
12: I want 10 pounds of kumquats and I'm in
4: a hurry. Oh, kumquats,
2: yeah. 10, ten pounds, pounds of kumquats, kumquats yes. Yeah. Then in 1916, a fellow named Clarence Saunders opened up the first Piggly Wiggly store in Memphis, in which astonished customers were given a basket and told to roam around the shelves and pick out their own stuff. This novel idea caught on with shoppers, but even in to the 1930s, shoppers in most places would go to a butcher shop for meat, a fresh produce store or cart for fruits and veggies, another store for shelf-stable items like flour or canned goods. But then, the idea of putting all of that in one store began to spread. So, 1933, the term supermarket was first coined. 1937, the shopping cart was invented. That really helped things. And by the 1950s, supermarkets were kings of food retailers. Really no competition except from other supermarkets. But in the last few years... That has certainly changed, and supermarkets are having to work very hard.
12: Trying to compete on many different fronts. And
2: there are so many fronts. That's Brian Todd, president of the Food Institute, which does all kinds of research on the food retailing business, which he says is definitely...
12: Changing every day.
2: Putting supermarkets in a defensive position where they have to change or lose out. Brian was speaking to a U.S. Department of Agriculture conference. He said there are some bites being taken out of supermarket sales from all directions. More retail businesses are going going into grocery sales, nipping away at supermarkets. Drug stores, for example, are putting in more freezer cases, more fresh food sections, and just a few days ago, the Kohl's department store chain announced it was offering up space in some of its stores to Aldi's for grocery sales. And supermarkets are also facing even more competition as we speak from dollar stores. And they're taking sales away from local supermarkets, especially in rural areas where more and more people seem to be
12: popping into a dollar store to buy their milk and bread. Um, Dollar stores have noticed this, so they are expanding their food offerings, adding more freezer cases, more um, ready-to-eat foods, so we're seeing much more growth in those areas. And of course,
2: in the more urban areas, we have the beginnings of what Brian Todd calls the meal kit concept. Companies like HelloFresh and others providing home delivery of the ingredients to make entire meals, saving time for meal preparers, also reducing what they need to buy at the grocery store. And as they say on the TV ads, wait, there's more more competition for our food dollar from restaurants and a major spurt in the number of drinking establishments todd says drinking places saw sales up 17 percent last year
12: we figured maybe you know with with everything that's been happening in the country people were just drinking more Uh,
2: (laughs) but no they were eating more at the local watering holes
12: a lot of the drinking places were increasing their food offerings this ties into the uh, the surge in craft breweries offering food items.
2: So that's just a taste of what supermarkets are up against. Todd says supermarket sales did grow last year, but by only 2%, which is considered in the industry very low growth, almost no growth.
12: But retailers are a very creative group of people.
2: And so... Yes, supermarkets are fighting back, trying to stay in the hunt by... uh, Putting in new technology,
12: trying to imitate what the competitor is doing in many ways, trying to squeeze as much out of the dollar as they can.
2: On the imitation front, the purchase of the Whole Foods grocery store chain by e-commerce home delivery giant Amazon has prompted more supermarket chains to try to get into more e-commerce and home delivery.
12: There is an expense for the chain in there, but I think they see it as something that they have to do to compete.
2: Some stores are offering meal kits themselves also. They are revamping their deli sections with more prepared foods there and in other parts of the stores. In other words... More services
12: for that time-starved consumer because that's what they want.
2: And we mentioned that supermarkets are also losing sales to restaurants and bars, and so many stores have put in restaurants in their stores, so-called grocerants.
12: They're making... The supermarket more entertaining, trying to keep the people in there as long as possible. And
2: some supermarkets are tapping in on other consumer trends. More fresh foods grown by local farmers, more organic products. Just anything to try to boost sales and stay relevant in the fast-changing world of food retailing. Because, here we go again with it.
8: It's jungle out there. It's jungle out there.
2: This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford, reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.